This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You get so many comments when you get certain tattoos, like my stomach one, like gets a lot of comments because they think it's unladylike, especially like older women in the summertime. So like minding my business and they're like, you're never going to get a husband with those tattoos. I'm just like, who said I wanted one? Yeah, or just like, why do people care so much? I'm like, we're all going to die anyway. Like the last thing I'm worried about is like finding a husband. It's 2020. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules and get tattoos instead of husbands. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And that was a woman named Olivia talking to Unladylike producer Sam Lee. Sam stopped by a tattoo pop-up in an athleisure store called Outdoor Voices. And Caroline... I personally love that we live in a world now that, you know, is arguably on the verge of self-destruction, but at least you can one-stop shop for tattoos and sports bras with no judgment. (laughs) Kristen, women really can have it all. (laughs) Yes, we can-ish. But seriously, like, it is the tattoo-friendliest time in American history. I mean, around one in five adults in the U.S. have at least one, and almost half of millennials have them, myself included. You know, not to brag, but maybe just to (laughs) brag a a little bit. Well, Kristen, I don't have any tattoos yet. Mm. But thanks to Instagram, like I've actually had my eye on a few lady tattoo artists, so I might be getting up the nerve. Do it. I mean, I would not I would not object Caroline if you got like my profile, my good side, you know, on on like your lower back or I think I'd look pretty cute on an ankle. Love that silhouette. Uh, But I'll get back to you uh, because we aren't just popping by a pop-up today, Kristen. We're also talking to an iconic rule breaker and tattoo collector, Margaret Cho. My mother gets very angry with me because I have a lot of tattoos and I know this. uh, Don't be alarmed. I'll show you. I have a lot. I have a lot of tattoos. I, um, because I'm trying to avoid plastic surgery. I'm just going to keep getting tattooed so nobody even notices that I have wrinkles. They'll just be like, oh, where's that turtle going? This episode, Margaret Cho is taking us on an intimate journey of what all her ink signifies and the body politics of being a heavily tattooed Korean-American woman. But first, we're tagging along with producer Sam on her unladylike tattoo field trip. And that's not all, y'all. There is so much more. The origin of tramp stamps, organized crime, getting kicked out of spas. And it's all to find out, what do our tattoos say about us? 
Hi, uh, I called ahead. I'm a podcast producer, and I was hoping to Hi. chat with some of the ladies getting oh, go ahead. tattooed. Everyone kind of waiting around here. Are waiting to get tattooed. Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much. Let me take my photo. Okay, folks, so we're here with producer Sam, who recently went on our tattoo field trip. Hey, Sam. Hello. <laughs> yeah, for this episode, I really wanted to, you know, talk to some women getting tattoos and hear about why they were getting tattoos. And it turns out that the best place to hear from women getting tattoos in 2020 is at a stick and poke pop up, which I've seen them pop up all over at flea markets, craft fairs, concerts. Um, but this particular event was at an outdoor voices store in New York City. Okay, so for people who don't know what we are talking about, <laughs> what is stick and poke? Okay, so stick and poke tattoos are basically the most bare bones kind of tattooing, like stripping it down without a machine to just a needle and some ink. So you could trace that back to some of the oldest tattooing traditions in the South Pacific. But in the U.S., they've kind of traditionally been associated with, like, prison tattoos or, you know, punk rock teens tattooing each other at parties with, like, ballpoint pens, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Well, I feel like in the past few years, like, they, uh, they're they kind of everywhere. I, well, by everywhere, I mean my my social media, but <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they're very trendy to see on Instagram or like Pinterest. If you've noticed little tattoos that are little dainty doodles of things like flowers, diamonds, just little like sparkles, cacti, those kinds of things are typically stick and pokes. And uh, I talked to the artist at the event. Her name is Rosa Bluestone Purr about the appeal of stick and pokes, uh, especially for women. I think that, like, this aesthetic is more approachable for a lot of people. And it's, like, it's less about, like, just, like, a huge piece of art on your body and more about, like, a small adornment that complements that body part. And I also just really like how intimate it is. There's not, like, a big vibrating sound, so I can still talk to my clients. And it just looks more, like human-made on skin, which I really like. It's not just, like, a perfectly printed, dark object on skin. Rosa has over 44,000 followers on her Instagram account, which is at BlueStoneBabe. She says 90% of her clients are women. And a lot of those women especially like going to Rosa because she runs out of a private studio in Brooklyn instead of being in a typical tattoo shop. I've gotten piercings in tattoo parlors just because that's, like, what's been available to me. And I always walk in and I'm like, well, I know that it's sterile, but yeah. that's about it. Yeah. It does feel, like, overwhelming and a little, I don't know, just off. Yeah. I mean, to me, it reminds me of, like, a bike shop. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, I'm not your target customer. Am I even in the right place? It makes you kind of question your own sort of buy-in to what you're about to do. I noticed the opposite in Rosa's interaction with clients. When they were picking out their art, choosing where to put it, like I think there was a different dynamic there being kind of lady to lady versus if Rosa had been a dude. In terms of placement, tell me if you have something in mind. Um, I think right. Like centered? Yeah. I love that. Awesome. I think that's a great spot for this. Perfect. It's a very symmetrical design. Yeah. Okay, cool. Check that out. You can look in the mirror. Oh, cool. Make sure you love it. Okay. 
This event was extremely welcoming and supportive. I saw a really diverse crowd, and that really meant a lot to folks like Olivia, who we heard from at the top of the episode. As a woman of color, getting a tattoo has not always been such a friendly experience. Um, actually, I've had someone refuse to tattoo me. It's like I made an appointment, and it was like one of my first times ever making a tattoo appointment. I was so nervous, and then I walked in, and they refused to do a tattoo on my skin when they saw me. I, uh, most tattoo artists don't post dark skin, even if they do them, or they edit the skin to look lighter. Olivia isn't alone. Artists refusing to tattoo dark skin is a real problem. And you see it in pop culture, too. A contestant on Ink Master who went on to win once said on the show, I don't want the dark canvases. Speaking about people, actual people's bodies of color, they take away half your skill sets. I always had like a love-hate relationship with my skin. I grew up in like an almost all-white neighborhood. And, you know, like being told directly or indirectly that like you aren't beautiful and the skin that you're in, like every single tattoo I get, it's almost like reclaiming agency. And every time I get one, I just feel prettier and better about myself. So I wanted to feel prettier and better about myself. (laughs) So guess what, guys? What? I also got a tattoo. (laughs) I did it. I love it. It's so cute. It is so cute. (laughs) It's just a teeny circle made of dots, uh, but I really love it. And it will always remind me of the wonderful times I had here working at Unladylike. Oh, I love that. Um, And and I'm glad that your... that your tattoo will be a pleasant reminder of, <laughs> of your work. Um, and wow, uh, listeners, just for the record, too, we Caroline and I did not request Sam to get a tattoo. <laughs> I mean, were, that was not a good We were not forcing anything. Um, but I love that, Sam. Uh, thank you so much for reporting that out for us. Oh, it was my true pleasure and pain, apparently. (laughs) It didn't hurt that much. Well, y'all, now it's time to talk to someone who's had more than her fair share of tattoo adventures. My kneecaps have the uh, faces of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington from the $1 bill and the $5 bill because it costs $6 to spread them. (laughs) (laughs) Now you know. So it's the price of admission. Cost to ride. You must be this tall and... Uh, you have to have $6. <laughs> That's Margaret Cho. And no joke, y'all. She really has Abe and George on either knee. <laughs> and sure, we could have talked to Margaret about her groundbreaking career as a stand-up comic, actor, artist, activist. But we decided to get to know her through her 78 tattoos instead. I got my first tattoo in 2003. So I was... 33. It was uh, from Don Ed Hardy, who uh, was one of the last tattoos he did. He did a huge uh, snakes and peonies, um, Japanese style, uh, very, very large piece. And um, I got it in San Francisco. I had just gotten married. I was very um, happy in my life. I got, I got a, I just bought a house. I, um, was embarking on this time of like, okay, well, I'm fully grown, like I'm grown. So that was sort of the tattoo almost that I'd been planning since I was a kid. But at the same time, it was like the the right timing because I, I felt like I could understand like, oh, well, I'm an adult now and I I don't need anybody's permission to do this. And, and so that was the beginning. 
Margaret's not exaggerating when she says she'd been planning for that tattoo since childhood. In fact, she remembers begging her dad to let her get one when she was just 12. My uh, parents owned a gay bookstore in San Francisco in the 70s. And all of the employees, they all had full body tattoos and um, they were encouraging my father to let me get them early. And uh, my dad was like, oh, no, 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 because he knew that it was like inevitable that I was going to get these tattoos. But uh, he's like, well, don't start now. But it was my parents' fault because they would take the photographs of their employees who had the full body tattoos. I mean, and this is like 1978, which to me is like, that is incredible, you know, because tattooing wasn't a thing then. Like it wasn't as big as it is now. And uh, certainly um, to put that on your refrigerator, uh, it's kind of, you know, it's an influential thing. So um, I, um, I'm i grateful to that. Why did your dad think it was inevitable, though, that you would get that? Because he was raising me around tattooed people that were very influential who would um, pop me on the back of a motorcycle in 1978 without a helmet and fly <laughs> through the city. You know, he would give me to like a little queer man who had a big motorcycle and a lot of piercings and tattoos. Why do you think that they were comfortable letting you ride off on the back of a motorcycle without a helmet? <laughs> I think because uh, they uh, were now living in America. Because when they moved to America, they realized they didn't have to behave anymore. And my dad was all, he's a musician. He loved the beat poets. He wanted to move to San Francisco and have a bookstore like City Lights. And he wanted me to have that experience of growing up around uh, people who were living their lives, who were artistic, who were unafraid to be queer, who were unafraid to be themselves. And, and I think that there was part of him that understood that I was queer. And he knew that because he was not, he couldn't give me any sort of um, pointers. <laughs> so sort of put me around gay people, I think, to help me become better uh, understanding of like who I was and in the world. And you know, in, in Korea, they grew up in such a restrictive way. And Korea, you know, as we see in the movie Parasite, is really class-oriented, and you almost can never rise above your station. And my family were kind of obsessed with doing that. You know, they had sort of poor um, beginnings, and so they wanted to see if they could rise above with art and literature and culture and music. And, um, you know, and that, I think that really did happen for me as, uh, as their sort of grand plan. So how are tattoos then perceived within Korean communities kind of in general? They do not like them. And also, like, I had issues going to, like, Korean bathhouses, which are, they're like hammams in, in Turkey or, like, um, you know, they're, they're like a, a very big part of Korean culture. You go to the bathhouse with your friends. It's like a spa, and you just unwind. And they're, they're often open 24 hours, and there's, like, a restaurant and you just like walk around naked and everybody's like very comfortable with that and um but I have so many tattoos that people are really up upset and uh I've had like altercations within um these like spas with people and the kind of discrimination that comes with tattooing is it's like palpable so palpable that in South Korea being a tattoo artist without a medical license is actually illegal yeah and that tattoo stigma has deep historical roots across much of Asia and in South Korea, it became further entrenched after the Korean War. South Korea was decimated in the war, so in 1960, and completely rebuilt by organized crime. And the way that organized crime sort of like 
acknowledged their being was through these full body tattoos, which we knew was sort of like Yakuza tattoos, but it's also Korean tradition. So uh, tattoos are often thought of as like got the criminal element, but I'm like, you know, a li- an old Korean lady. Like I'm so not a Yakuza. Like I'm really not in organized crime. So that in itself should be a signifier that I'm not that, but it, there's those old um, biases still hold. So there's a lot of uh, pushback. Like if I go to Japan, which I do go to Japan once a year, I'm not allowed in the bathhouses there because I'm so tattooed. And that's really unfortunate. You know, there's a few bathhouses now that allow uh, tattoos and they're more sort of like open to Westerners um, because everybody has them now. But uh, the traditional ones, I can't go in. So is is that kind of restriction in terms of like not allowing tattoos in the bathhouse, is that purely stigma or is there any idea about like it being less sanitary? Like what's what's their rationale? I don't know. I mean, I think that is, it is like, it is a stigma, social stigma, but then of course that's attached of like, you know, and the underworld is like a dirty place. And so that there's a kind of um, discrimination that goes with that. So that, that sort of could be like the idea. I mean, it, it's like, you'll you you can't get rid of those thoughts and and that people have about cleanliness and a kind of like pristine skin but at the same time um tattooing has such a long tradition in Japan that it's weird and i think that tattooing a lot too was uh well it, b- before like you would um you would tattoo criminals so the the yakuza full body tattoo just developed out of people wanting to cover them with de- decorative tattoos and so that that's sort of like it's a lasting stigma. I mean, the, the, the stuff started in like the year, like 800 or something. So I think it's time to let it go. But uh, <laughs> whatever. I don't know. <laughs> They're slow about some things. Let's give it a couple more years. So, Caroline, if tattoos come with centuries of like cross-cultural side-eye, why are we still getting them anyway? Cho knows. And she's going to drop that knowledge after a quick break. Stay tattooed. Mm. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. We're back with Margaret Cho and her 78 tattoos. I remember um, in I was in uh, Cannes in, in France uh, in the summer, and I was walking around. It was like a heat wave, so super hot. So everybody's like walking around pretty much like naked, like in bikinis on the street. 
And I was walking around and um, men would come up and just grab my thigh, like my thigh or, or my upper arm, or they would touch my back or they would like get real close and take photos of uh, my stomach. It, it's because I'm so tattooed. Um, so when a woman is heavily tattooed, it's like, why do you have this graffiti on this public wall? This is not cool. Well, I'm going to comment on it and say something. And uh, it's like that that attitude is really deep in our psyche and it's it's not cool. And there's this prevailing notion that women's bodies are public space. That's why our bodies are always criticized for being too large or too small or whatever, that everybody feels like they can comment on it, that everybody feels that they can like reach out and touch a pregnant woman's belly. That it's like this thing of like, we can somehow look at women's bodies as like public space because we treat it as such in in so many ways. And so it's kind of like this thing of like, you're breaking the rules by marking up yourself like like you're a library book like I you know dog you're my library book pages and so I'm going to get a talking to from the librarian that kind of thing it's like there's sort of like this thing of transgression if you're a woman and you have something on your body like that to understand why tattoos read as transgressive on femme bodies we need to unpack some claptrap Unpack the Claptrap is the part of the show where we dog-ear patriarchy's Pulp Fiction to find out why things are the way they are. Let's start with some obvious Claptrap, the tramp stamp. So the 70s and 80s ushered in a tattoo renaissance, and they began spreading from the counterculture out to the mainstream. It was during that time that lower back tats on women got their first nickname, Kristen, the chick spot. Mm. (laughs) The slang was actually popularized by a hotshot 80s tattoo artist named Jill Jordan. And the way she explained it was that ladies loved chick spot tats because they were easy to conceal. Yeah, I really hope that Jill Jordan wore a high-waisted Jordache jeans (laughs) in the 80s. Uh, But then in the late 90s, the low-rise jean trend dropped women's waistlines to practically our pubes, much to my mother's chagrin. (laughs) And Britney Spears' everywhere began bearing their chick spots and g-strings like never before and with that the suddenly sexualized chick spot got slut shamed and renamed the tramp stamp who decided that lower back tattoos are tramp stamps i don't know but it's like (laughs) to me it's like a ridiculous thing i mean it's that's kind of like a misogyny too you know of like how dare a woman do that and so the, the payback for that is that you're going to be, like, stamped as a tramp. Like, it's like, it, it is kind of low-key, not even low-key, but it's high-key misogyny. But it's also this thing of, like, uh, again, like, women are not allowed to do stuff to their bodies like that, you know, because women are ours. So I, I don't I don't think that's cool. But um, I do love, I love a I love a lower back tattoo. I think it's quite beautiful, actually, on uh on anybody, but, uh, you know, women's bodies in particular because the the back is so beautiful and, you know, like this sort of, I think the spine where everything starts, that sort of the kundalini snake is coiling. I think it's really a lovely space. So who knows? Well, I also read, like, uh, in the whole, like, tramp stamp of it all, definitely, like, high-key misogyny at work, but also it feels very almost classist in a way because it's, yeah. like— you know what I mean? Like it's uh it's a trashy mm. kind of tattoo to get. Which it's like 
so, like, what's wrong with trashiness? Like, I love it. Like, I am so, in my heart and mind, I am such a temple um, prostitute. Like, I really <laughs> love to mix the high and what is considered the low. To me, it's holy. Like, it's very, it's beautiful. So, a trashiness, like, to me is, it's really relative to, like, what you sort of look at as trash. Like, to me, trashiness is littering. That's just <laughs> trashy. But everything else is kind of like, well, you know, it's more of a judgment on, like, what you what you consider, like, your body and what you want to do with it. You know, it's like your choices. But Caroline, to really understand how tattoo stigmas got under our skin in the West, we've got to rewind way back before the tramp stamp ramped up. So I found this nugget in a very unladylike 2019 dissertation titled, I Can Do Whatever the Hell I Want, Female Tattoo Artists, Their Experiences, and Identity Creation. You know I love a good dissertation title. <laughs> oh, I do. And the person apparently responsible for setting off Western tattoo trends was this rich dude named Sir Joseph Banks, who's basically like that guy who won't shut up about all the places he's traveled thanks to his trust fund. <laughs> We've all met him. Yeah. In the late 1700s, he tagged along with Captain James Cook through the South Pacific, where they encountered Polynesian tattooing cultures. When he came back to England, he not only brought the word tattooing back with him, but also a tattooed Tahitian man to show off like a prop to all of his rich friends. Like the audacity of white people, you truly, know? Truly, truly. All right, so fast forward to the Victorian era, and it's unclear exactly how this happened, but tattoos evolved from, as one source put it, a type of working-class jewelry to status symbols for fancy white ladies. For instance, y'all, unconfirmed rumor has it that Winston Churchill's mother, Lady Jenny Spencer Churchill, had a discreet little snake tattoo on her wrist that she would cover up with bracelets. That's right, y'all. If you want some hot goss from the Victorian era, <laughs> you've come to the right podcast. <laughs> but, but like, that discreetness was key to the chicness. Because also at the time, if you wanted to see women flaunting their tattoos, you'd head for the nearest circus sideshow. Yeah, by the turn of the 20th century, tattooed ladies had become an entertainment staple, attracting folks who paid to gawk at all of their body art. It makes sense, then, that during the World War I era, a sideshow contortionist named Maude Wagner became the first white female tattoo artist in the U.S. that we know of. She learned stick and poke on a first date with a tattooed circus performer who would become her husband, Kristen. Oh, my. She would have so many Instagram followers these days. <laughs> I know. You know it. Uh, similarly, in 1939, a circus burlesque dancer named Mildred Hull became one of the first American women to open her own shop, which earned her uh, the very creative nickname of New York's only lady tattooer. <laughs> and like most tattoo outposts back then, Mildred's Tattoo Emporium was in the back of a barber shop. I bet Margaret Cho would have totally hung out at Mildred's Tattoo Emporium. Oh, you know it. I mean, she and Millie probably would have had plenty to talk about. Well, how do you feel about tattoo culture? Like, is the whole boys club thing, like, is that stereotype accurate in your mind? Yes, because men create environments within these industries that are very supportive and nurturing to each other, where they bring other men in and they father each other. And they don't have that for women because there's so few of us in certain industries. We're locked out through the sort of gatekeeping that 
it's semi uh, it's intentional, but it's more like an overlooking thing. It's like, well, we just didn't think that girls want to do this, you know, which is dumb and also gross. So that that's very real in comedy and very real in tattooing. And so I think that um, the women in tattooing are exceptional because they have to be in order to just get anywhere and also to survive. They have to be self-sufficient and at the same time, just really great. So, you know, it's like you have to endure so much, but because of that, women are often better tattoo artists in the same way that women are often better at everything. So, Kristen, the gender gap in who's getting tattoos has actually closed in recent years. But in terms of who's giving them, it's been tougher to move that needle. Yeah, even though we do see female and non-binary tattoo artists really claiming their space all over Instagram, in new shops, and, you know, the occasional athleisure store pop-up. But the most recent surveys and studies we found estimate that they're still making up less than 20% of tattoo artists at large. My two favorites would be Kat Von D and Kim Say, who are uh, great tattooers. And um, their uh, tattoos occupy large, large uh, real estate on my body. Um, Kim Say's uh, tattoo that she did uh, for me is a huge peony that is right above my vagina. So it sort of celebrates uh, the pussy. It's kind of like a pussy mural. And it's like really Mm. like, um, you know, it, it just reminds you of where you're going. Um, it's a good signpost, so you know you're going the right direction, and uh, it is really glorious. Are we are we noticing some stereotypes around women getting tattoos changing, especially like since you first started getting them? Yeah, for sure, because women are sort of understanding the beauty and power of owning your own body. Like it's like I I I can own my body and I can do this for myself. And, and that's powerful. And I think that, um, you know, the aesthetics of tattooing, it's like now we've almost modified them to our own aesthetics and, and, you know, you can do whatever you want and that's a really great thing. And, and, um, so I feel like that's a positive thing that it's like on Pinterest because now we're seeing like, it doesn't have to be this sort of like rough and tumble thing unless you want that. It can be actually very, uh, elegant and very subtle, or it can be very um, loud and bombastic. And it can also be um, just very pretty and very girly if you want, you know, so that's that's really special. Okay, but with those like pretty tattoos, it, I feel like there's this perception in the tattoo world that like you're not a real tattoo person if you have like a simple or overtly feminine tattoo. So like, have you noticed that kind of snobbery out there? It's so much snobbery. I love a stick and poke. I love like a bunch of like stick and pokes. Like it's great. And that's a whole nother aesthetic that's quite, um, I think, new and really beautiful and really exciting. Um, And I think that it's like, and yeah, I love an overtly very feminine art, like an Art Nouveau tattoo or something like to me that's really exciting and beautiful. And yeah, there's all of this unnecessary gatekeeping around tattoos where it's like, you don't get to say like what is authorized or what's like officially this is a cool tattoo. Like that's not up to your judgment. It's really up to the person who has it and the artist to some degree. It's like really like this weird thing of like there is no authority. There is no – this is art and it's also adornment and personal taste and that is something that cannot be governed. 
When we come back, Margaret shares how tattoos are like a fine wine. They just get better with age. And they last longer than lip fillers. Stick and poke around. Oh, you. (laughs) Oh, you. Now you've really done it, Caroline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do your tattoos collectively say about you? I think that they say that I am here for it. I'm here for life in all the forms that it can take, all of the experiences that it can give me. And I'm not afraid to be permanently marked by those experiences. We're back with Margaret. I'm here for it, Joe. And Caroline, even though I have, uh, let's see, 76 fewer (laughs) tattoos than her, what she says about them being these permanent markers of experience rings true for me. Like, I have a World War II battleship tattooed on my ribcage to commemorate an especially painful period of time in my life. Well, Kristen, that echoes a broader theme. In in her book, Bodies of Subversion, tattoo scholar Margot Mifflin says that a lot of women's tattoos represent some sort of body autonomy or self-empowerment. And, you know, that might mean like general life crises, but it also might mean healing from sexual assault, abusive relationships or mastectomies. I just love that I can claim my body is mine. You know, I have a long history of sexual abuse and um This kind of uh, tattooing myself is a claiming of my own body. Like, this body's mine, and I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to allow societal expectations of what a woman's body should be to interfere with my own celebration of self. So there's important reasons behind it. But because the reasons are so important, I can get real dumb tattoos. (laughs) (laughs) So you'd wanted tattoos since you were a kid, Why did you wait till you were 33 to get your first? I think because I had such little body satisfaction. Like, in the 90s, like, nobody was happy until you had a visible ribcage. Like, it was, like, weird because feminism was kind of at an all-time high with, like, Riot Girls and, like, feminism was on fire. But for some reason, we had to be super thin. And, like, that was, like, a crazy demand. And I was so dissatisfied with my body— angry at my body. I think throughout my 20s, um, I had so many body issues that I was just too in my head about it. And it took me until it got into my 30s to really like ease into the fact that this is it, you know, like don't complain. Like you got to be grateful that you have a body and that you can do all these things. Like the body is not there to um, make smaller. Um, The body is there to, you know, get you to do everything, like to have this human experience. You're not to make demands on size or shape or whatever because your body does so much for you. And so it was a real relationship that I had to heal before I started getting tattoos. I think it's so – that's so interesting to hear because I feel like the 
fear-mongering, um, at least that I received growing up about tattoos, was like, oh, no, like, your body is a temple. Like, don't you don't want to, yeah. like, mark that up. Like, tattoos being seen as a sign of, of self-hate, when in Ooh. fact, I think for a lot of us, it's kind of the opposite. Right. I mean, it's like the the fact that the body is a temple and then you but you choose the way you worship, you know, like that's mm. the thing is that when you put choice into it, it changes the game, you know, because one interpretation of the body being a temple is to sort of leave it sort of pristine and unmarked. But the other side of it is like, yeah, let's let's decorate, let's adorn, let's worship this the way it should be. Let's get to the goddess portion. And um, for me, it's it's really about that. You like, I'm more of a decorative arts kind of person, so I like a flourish. I love a scroll. I love any kind of flowers on something. So you know, like I like to decorate. So it, to me, it's intuitive to do. But uh, so there's different methods and there's different ideas about what the temple needs to look like. So in your stand-up, you've described tattoos as essentially your alternative to plastic surgery. So tell us about that. There's something about uh, plastic surgery that, I don't know, it's sort of like this resistance to the passage of time, which I really appreciate the passage of time. So I I, I like gravity. I I know that it's doing this to me, but I know that it's also um, giving me... um, more reasons to stand up straight and and to uh, fight it in any way that I can. And my fighting it is to keep a young mind, to get tattoos, to get pierced, to be around young people, which is something that also a lot of older women resist. Um, I have friends who are in their early 20s who are like e-girls, and they're vaping, and they're watching TikTok, and they're showing me their dances. And I'm like, so into that. And so many older women resent young women. And I, I feel like that's a mistake. Yeah, we did kind of building on that. We, we wanted to ask you whether like tattoos play any role in the relationship between your body and aging and whether that relationship has evolved in any sort of way. Yeah, I think so. It's, like, made me understand, like, a comfort within the body and, like, oh, I've had this tattoo since the early 2000s. And, like, there's, like, a a joy there. And then, like, remembrance and a beautiful feeling about life lived. Well, it's funny. I just—so I related so much to what you said about, like, hitting 33 and, like, things in your life felt really good. You finally felt like a grown-up. I just, like, totally identify with that. I, like—so I'm 36— Went through a big breakup after years and years, and, like, I got through Mm. it, and I kind of felt like I'd gotten my master's in life. I don't know if you (laughs) you know what I mean, but, like, I kind of came out of that. One of the other things that kind of shook out coming through that period was, like, oh, I'm not really so concerned as I used to be with what people think of me. And suddenly I started really, really getting into different tattoo artists. Like, who could Mm. I go see? Um, But, yeah, that really, like, because I've never been opposed to them. They've always just sort of been an abstract thought, but it's more like I feel mm-hmm. like I came through something, life got better, and I was like, oh, shit, yeah, why Why? Like why you've not? earned it almost? Like, well, yeah, I've you have, but also it. like who cares, you know? Yeah. Like, why not? And ha- let's have fun. You know, it's like when you've been through something so painful, it's great to celebrate in some way that's just for you. Oftentimes, we live our lives uh, for other people, whether that's relationships, you know, for whatever reason, 
And so when you can come through that, it, it's time to celebrate and have that party just for yourself and to celebrate that in the way that you know how, whether that is um, any kind of adornment, whether that is uh, creating something, um, whether that is art, whether that is music, whatever, whatever that is for you. Uh, I think we know what we have to do. Y'all are going to want to check out Margaret Cho's new podcast called The Margaret Show. Very easy to remember. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that. In the meantime, tell us all of your tattoo thoughts. Do you have any? Do you want any? Are there any you regret? Email us at hello at unladylike.co. Find us on social at Unladylike Media or join our private Facebook group and jump into the thread for this episode. Visit unladylike.co to find this episode's sources and transcript. Thanks to all y'all who are signed up to support us on Patreon. If you want brand new, ad-free, extra Unladylike bonus episodes, head over to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia and subscribe. Sam Lee and Nora Ritchie are the producers of Unladylike. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Executive producers are Chris Bannon, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Special thanks to Brendan Burns at Stitcher in LA and to Outdoor Voices and Rosa Bluestone Purr for letting us record at their event. Next week. I do remember somewhere in childhood becoming aware that like other people talked about their mothers in a way that seemed very weird to me. Like this idea that you would go to your mother for comfort just seemed bizarre to me, which, you know, as I say that out loud, sounds very telling, and it is. But, um, Yeah, there was this idea that, like, why would you ever go to your mother for comforting? That's just not how it works. We're talking to Harriet Brown, author of The Shadow Daughter, a memoir of estrangement about how to break up with your parents and what comes after. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike so you don't miss the episode. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. What is the most unladylike thing about you? Oh, um, that I, um, there's always shit in my pants. Like, I never completely <laughs> wipe my asshole. And there's always shit. And, of course, the jeans are $300. And it's not like I am cheap or uh, dirty about anything. But I also never wear underwear. So, commando constantly. And I'm too busy to really wipe. I should get some, <laughs> some solutions there. But it, 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 there's always some shit somewhere like always <laughs> there is nothing quite like taking off lingerie and seeing just like god knows what in the crotch just like oh oh well, yeah yeah there we go like, <laughs> it's like an ombre of like yellow to <laughs> <laughs> Stitcher. 